You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to. The Life Tree Community Church Podcast. Um, I want to invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you need a Bible, those soft cover Bibles there, you can take one of those and use those. If you don't have one, you can take one home. Our gift to you, please. There'll be a. Uh, It'll be on the screen, too, in a few minutes when I get to it, uh, so you can read along either you know, in front of you, on paper, for you old school types, or you can follow along on the screen or on your phone or whatever you, device you choose. If you just have it all memorized, good for you. Um, so I just want to recap. Uh, we've been doing a series, uh, if, you're, if you're just coming in, we're doing a series in the life of David, and David's one of the most Im- important, most, uh, most well-known historical figures in history. You know, Jesus was called the son of David. You know, we, we recognize the star of David. We've got the stories of David and Goliath. Like, that's sort of a common metaphor in our language for, you know, uh, the giants and the jets. You know, I just, this year I don't know which one is really David and which one is Goliath because they're, they're both kind of like just sheep. They're, they're terrible. Um, but David... David was a, as a name and a list of generations that led to Jesus, you know. So he's, he's, a, he's accomplished the purposes of God in his generation. Uh, he was a shepherd boy, anointed by Samuel. We know he defeated Goliath. He served Saul, the king. He had, so the, the king's son was his best friend. Then he was on the run in caves. The next thing you know, he's king. And all this comes together and God says, David is a man after my own heart. Right? It's not like somebody else said that, but God said that about David. So God is like singling him out in history, saying, this guy, he's got a heart like God's. It's like, that's a big statement. That, and that's a, that, that says a lot. That puts a lot of pressure on David. right? And that also makes David a little more important in our eyes. Like, why, why would God point him out and say that? Um, and today we come to the next chapter of David's life. And I'm going to be honest, it's probably one of the hardest to understand. Um, it may test your understanding, uh, your trust in God. Like, God, how could you call that guy a man after your own heart if he does this? Because up until this point, David's been like hero stuff, like just doing awesome stuff, noble, you know, doing all, making all the right decisions. Um, and today might not be that. Um, there's a lot of stories, so we're going to get right to it. So remember, David is king at this point. He's like the shepherd boy, you know, all these years of waiting. Now he's finally king. He's doing a great job as king. He's just winning every victory for his people. He's just, he's just, he's killing it. He's absolutely killing it. We're going to pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And it says this. It says, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. So it's a victory, right? It's a victory. It says, however... David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So just before we get too far, I just want to clarify, where was David? He's home, right? Where should he have been? On the battlefield. Why wasn't he there? How many years had David spent waiting to be king? We talked about this, right? Like 15, 20 years? And now you get to be king? And you're not going to do king stuff? Like, how easy was it for David to take for granted something just a few years into doing it? 
He had been waiting his whole life to be king. All the pain, all the struggle. And now he gets to be king. And it's time for the king to go to war. And David's like, you know, I'm just going to just take some naps. Just going to sit back. You go. And the army wins, right? But here's the thing. If you aren't where you should be, where are you? Oh, okay. So you find yourself where you shouldn't be. This will turn out to be one of the worst decisions in David's life. Right there. Right there. Verse 2 says, Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, to be not confused with his morning rest, or his late afternoon rest, or his evening rest, right? It says, David got out of bed. Late one afternoon, he got out of bed. Okay, some of you understand. right? And he was walking on the roof of his palace. And as he looked out over the city... He noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Where should David have been? And where is he? He's not on the battlefield, okay? He's home taking naps, being a lazy, entitled king. He sees a woman and he's faced with a decision, one he should have never had to make. It's a decision David should have never had to make. And one bad decision leads to the next. Verse 3, he sent someone to find out who she was. And he is told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Ah, names. Names, just names. Not just names. Just names to some, but not names. Who's three names here, right? Three names. First, there's Bathsheba. She's a, a young woman. She's a wife. And she's a daughter. Okay. That's who she is. We, we, we just, that's all we know about her at this point. Second, we get a name. Eliam. It's her father. I've never really paid any attention to that name. I'll be honest with you. I've never paid any attention to that name. But I was like, I wonder if there's any other reference to Eliam in Scripture. So I like did some searching. Guess what? His name comes up again. In a list. In a list of David's mighty men. The mighty men we heard about. Eliam is one of David's mighty men and Bathsheba is his daughter. It's really interesting. And actually it says his father. Eliam is the the son of Ahithophel, whose name will come into play next week. Just tuck that away. So he's one of David's 30 finest warriors, outstanding men who fight valiantly for their king. So where is Eliam right now? He's on the battlefield and his daughter is here. And David knows exactly. So David says, who is that? They say it's Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam. David knows. This is one of his 30 boys. Like these are one of his mighty men. There's no question that David knows who Eliam is. Right? And third, we come up with the name Uriah, a husband. Just a husband, right? No, you know what? Uriah's name also shows up elsewhere. It's also on the list of David's mighty men. He's the last name on the list. You can, you can look it up for yourself. So this young woman is the daughter and wife of two of David's most trusted and loyal soldiers and warriors. They're both on the list of mighty men. Right. This woman's mother, I mean, her father and, and, and her husband. Right. They're David's mighty men. David is like, 
Okay. Surely when he hears this, any other thoughts he had are going to be set aside, right? Like, you know who that is. You know who that is. These are, these are your guys, right? This is, this, is, this is their family. Except, when you aren't where you're supposed to be, you see things you shouldn't see, and you choose to do things you shouldn't, you shouldn't do. That's a terrible story. Verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Appreciate the scriptures letting us know that. Then she returned home. How disappointing. How disappointing. We've been talking for weeks about how great David is. About how awesome and noble and honorable and valiant this guy is. And it grieves me that someone so great could be so foolish. I used to work with a pastor that was, he always made this statement. It was really deep and profound. Just, I'll say it a couple of times in case it's hard to understand, but he would say, sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. See, when I find that the King David could knowingly choose to make such a bad decision, so could I. And so could you. So could anybody. Right? This is, this is King David. We've just been talking about man after God's own heart. And he's doing this? None of us are immune. None of us are immune. God warned Cain. You go back to the beginning of time. The very first time. God's talking to Cain and Abel. Right? Adam and Eve got two sons, Cain and Abel. Right? And God's talking to Cain and he's angry because of you know, just some things that gone on. He didn't really do something he was supposed to do. He had anger in his heart. He did something wrong. He offered God a, a, a less than acceptable offering. His brother gave God a good offering. God accepted that, said, Cain's yours not good enough. Come back with something better. Cain gets angry and God says to him these words. He says, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. I don't care who you are. When you do something wrong, guess what? Sin is right there ready to get you. Right? It's ready to control you, to master you. David was able to resist the enemy in the caves. Do you remember we talked about it? In the caves, whispering in his ear, hey, the king's right there. Kill him right now. Kill him right now. And he says, no, I can't do that. That's the Lord's anointed. I can't do that. But guess what? The enemy didn't stop whispering. And David, David, it all began so innocently. I'm just going to stay home from the battle. That's where it started. It started with he wasn't where he should have been. It was a simple little decision. It didn't seem like anything major at the time. He didn't intend. I'm sure it was just like, hey, I'll just send Joab this time. I know I should, but I, maybe a little entitlement. Maybe I deserve it. You know, I've been fighting a lot of battles. I could stay here this time. He's got it. You know, I'll sit this one out. It began innocently enough, but it cost David. There's a powerful statement. I don't know who said it, but somebody said it somewhere, and it goes like this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. David is about to discover the truth of that statement. Let's pick it up in verse 5. It says, Later, 
Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant. And she sent a message to David saying, I'm pregnant. Oh, man. Yep, there it is. There it is. Whatever you had done in secret, guess what? Ain't secret anymore. Verse 6, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So David's, so Joab sent him to David. Where's Uriah? Oh wait, he's in the battle where he's supposed to be. And he gets to come home to this. See, because when you're, when, you, when you're in sin, guess what? You begin to just now invite other people into the mess. You just to drag them back down. Uriah should be fighting, but now he can't even do his job because David, there's a cost. When Uriah arrived, this is, this is, this is amazing. This is amazing. David said, so, how's the battle? Small talk. You know, how's Joab? How's the army getting along? How are things going with the war? And Uriah like, uh, you called me back to ask me this stuff? Then he tells Uriah, verse 8, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. You can, you see the guilt, right? He's just, and you understand David is scheming here. He's starting to develop a plan. He's like, hey, just go home. You know, just go home and, and be there. David's no longer a noble king. That shepherd boy, that noble heart, that's long gone. That's Saul sitting on the throne. That's somebody who only cares with protecting themselves. And if it wasn't evident how weak he was, oh man, verse, verse 9 says, but Uriah didn't go home. He didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. And when David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked him, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such mighty, such a thing. Uriah the mighty man, unknowingly giving his king a profound lesson in integrity and character and loyalty and honor. What irony. What irony, right? David's like trying to fix this problem, make it go away. And Uriah is not even helping. And the desperate king continues, verse 12. Well, stay here today, David tells him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, Uriah, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's guard. And it's just Uriah drunk. He's got more integrity than David sober. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. Man, where did that king go? Where did that? Could David have violated any more of his values? This is the guy who epitomized nobility and honor and loyalty and integrity. And now he has Uriah deliver his own death sentence. And the irony here is that he knew Uriah had enough integrity not even to open the letter. I'm going to put it in your own hands and I trust you enough and I know you're a man of honor so you won't. Too blind to see his own hypocrisy. Such a far cry from the king he was. 
Verse 16, so Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting and Uriah probably sitting there slugging it out, doing his very best to fight for his king, loyal till the end. And verse 17, when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Let me say, when David chose to stay home, I don't think he ever intended it to end like this. That wasn't what his plan was. This was not his plan all along. His plan wasn't to to violate all the values. (laughs) But one decision leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. I don't want to go that far, but sin will take you there. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Skip down to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. And she became one of his wives and she gave birth to a son. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. Can we just pause? This series is called The Heart After His. <laughs> Where you, you see that anywhere? Like, David was said to have a heart like God's by God. So how could God endorse a guy, right? Regardless of how much good he has done, Right. How much character he has shown. This is violating all of it. This is a, this is an adulterer, a murderer. This is this is a guy who's lying and 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 in, in secrets everywhere. He's self-indulgent. We've identified all these qualities in David and now he's violated them all. And I just say that by calling David a man after his own heart, God is not endorsing every action of David. We need to know this. Right. This is sinful and wrong. David abused his power. He violated Bathsheba. He violated the trust of his men. He displayed devastating brokenness. This was not a part of David that was anything like God. Nothing in here was like God. God is pure. He's true. He's holy. He judged David for this. This chapter in David's life is awful. Like, let's just, this isn't like, well, God's in here somewhere moving. No, no, this is awful. So what part of David's heart was anything like God in this. Well, the story's not over yet, so let us just finish a little bit longer. Second Samuel chapter 12 now, verse 1, just a few more verses. It says, So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David to tell David a story. He says, There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. And the rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. So rich guy owns a lot. And the poor man... Owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. It says he cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. This is guy's got some weird relationship going on with the sheep. I don't understand. Maybe you animal people understand. I'm trying to read this story and I'm like, God, I know you're inspiring this story, but that's weird. He's cuddling the sheep like a baby daughter. I don't know. Whatever. Verse 4, one day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb out of his arms that he was cuddling, and he killed it. And he prepared it for his guest. That's a terrible story. That's that's an awful story. Verse 5 says, David was furious. Now, this is the same David, right? Same, like, just immediately after this. 
As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and having no pity. It's funny how noble you can sound when you judge others. When you judge others. Then Nathan said to David, here it comes, you are that man. Right there. You are that man. First, I imagine the room got real quiet. It's like this. And those words hung in the air. I mean, this is David's palace. He's there. He's David. He's on the throne. Royal people everywhere. They tell him the story and they're all David. Like, yeah, David's like, yeah, that's terrible. We should do this. And Nathan goes, you are that man. Silence. And second, I just want to say Nathan's a stud. He's got no problem calling out his king. And he continues to let it rip. This is what God put on his heart. He says this, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel. And saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then? Have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and you have stolen his wife. I find it interesting that God asked David why. God never asked a question for his own benefit. Every time he asks a question, it's to reveal something to the listener. He wants David to do business and look at his own heart. Search yourself, David. What's going on in there? Why are you doing this? God knows he wants David to understand. Nathan continues. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. You don't want to mess with God. First off, man, that's, that's, can we agree that it's pretty clear here that nothing David did aligned with God's heart? Could God be clearer here that he's not okay with this? Like God's not like, well, I mean, you've been good, so, you know, for the most part, you're a good guy. I guess I can dismiss this one. God is gracious and loving for sure, but let me tell you, he is fierce, he is holy, and he is just. Right? One of my favorite lines from Chronicles of Narnia, right? talking about Aslan the lion. Like, you know, he represents the king. He's, he's a lion. Is he safe? He says, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. He's good. I tell you, he's good. God is good, but he ain't safe. He is fierce. Sin cannot be accepted anywhere, no matter who you are or who you think you are. God nailed David to the wall and exposed what David was trying to hide. He says, you're trying to live in this, and guess what? I'm calling it out right now in front of everybody. What a tragic chapter in David's life. But I don't want you to leave despairing today. What did you hear about church? Oh, man, it was terrible. Dude just failed. It was awful. He was good. Like, we're all just... Doomed, right? God never quits on us. He redeems and forgives. The key to unlocking God's restoring work is found in our heart, and this is where once again we find David revealing the heart of God. 
So just hang with me. Almost done here. It says this. Then David confessed to Nathan, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. That right there. That right there. Three words. I have sinned. Have the power to change everything. In uttering those three words, David did this. He acknowledged he was wrong. Right? And in doing so, he upheld and elevated what was right. He said, what I did, that was wrong. It was wrong. I confess. That was wrong. Two, he acknowledged he had violated his relationship with God because all sin is first and foremost against God. It breaks the covenant we have with him. God, the promise of your love and your grace, I've broken that relationship. God, I was wrong. And I was wrong against you. Third, true confession is a commitment to repentance. It's a turning from going this way. It's a turning from this and a turning towards what is right. A turning away from what was wrong and towards what is right. That was wrong. I violated it. I will make it right. I must live now a different way. I've got to be different. And here's what we learn about a heart after his. A heart after his is accountable. A heart after God's is accountable. It is willing to be corrected. It's willing to be corrected. Now, let me just say really very. The effects of David's sin were not erased. Consequences were not erased. The child he had with Bathsheba would die. Next week, we'll learn about more pain that would come because of this. Those things that God said that were going to happen to him. Repentance doesn't erase consequences. The story of the boy nailing, you know, a bunch of nails in his father's, you know, wall. Dad says, all right, pull them all out. He can pull them all out. He says, okay, you can undo what you did, but guess what? The holes are still there. You can't undo what you've done. You can't undo the consequences of your sin. David would have to live the rest of his life with the effects and the consequences of his choices. But the most important part of accountability is this. Why would you do it then if you can't undo it? It's this. It ensures that our failures don't define us. David was called a man after God's own heart. He made mistakes. He made big mistakes, huge mistakes, costly mistakes, devastating mistakes. Yet that did not define his life. He was not known as David the adulterer or David the murderer. He was not known as David the lousy or David the awful. He was known as David the man after God's own heart because he was accountable. His failures did not define him. They were part of his story. We all make mistakes. We screw up. Accountability gives us a gift that the failures of our life don't have to define us. They are part of us. We cannot escape their consequences David was known as a man after God's own heart, not for his perfection, but because of his willingness to be open and honest and accountable before God. God isn't saying, hey, look at this guy, David. He did everything right, and the only way you can be like me is if you do everything right. Because if that's the case, we're all out. If the only way to have a heart after God is to have always gotten everything right, disqualified, whole room, world, Everybody, all have sinned, all fall short, all disqualified, we're done. The distinguishing factor in a heart like God's is the willingness to be accountable. It's, one of the mo- it's both 
one of the most tragic stories in David's life and the most encouraging stories for us. Because we blow it and we mess up and our culture is ruthless with failure. Can I get an amen on that? Our culture is ruthless with failure. Our world seeks to define people by their failures. They flip it around. Our world would take David and that would be his story. That would absolutely be his story. It would be all over the news. Murderer, adulterer, doesn't matter what he did. This guy is a loser. Scumbag. All sorts of names. You could, They would just obliterate David. Never remove him. He'd be done for life. That's his story. That's who he would be labeled. That's who he would be branded. Our world seeks to define people by their failures. And God's not interested in doing that one bit. It's so completely counter-cultural. If this story doesn't prove the grace of God, I don't know what will. I really don't know what will. He sees our absolute worst. The worst that you've ever done, he sees it and continues to give us opportunities for redemption and forgiveness. Do we understand how much God loves us? Our world doesn't do any favors at all in understanding this. We're so afraid to be accountable. So afraid of confessing things to people or just being honest about our struggles because this world wants to define us by our failures. And God's not saying, I diminish your failures. Um, He's not accepting them. He's not enabling them. He's not doing any of that stuff. What he's saying is, that will not define you if you continue to be open before me. No matter who you are and what you've done, God has not given up on you. Your darkest moments do not define you. So what? What can we do in response to that world-changing truth? If your and my biggest failures don't define us, what can we do today? Step one, answer this question. Are you where you're supposed to be? Because it starts there. It starts there. It all starts with daily obedience. And there's a very simple way to find this out. Um, you, You should go home and you should pray and you should say something like this. God... Is this where I'm supposed to be? And then listen to what he tells you. Are your eyes where they're supposed to be? Is your mind where it's supposed to be? Are your words where they're supposed to be? Are your hands where they're supposed to be? Are you physically where you're supposed to be? Are you mentally, emotionally where you're supposed to be? God, am I walking down roads that are no good for me? If God says, stay here, Stay here. And if God says, go there, go there. It's about it. Are you where you're supposed to be? David knew this is the time of year when kings go to battle. That's where I should be. Are you where you're supposed to be? Today, you're absolutely where you're supposed to be. You should always be here Sunday mornings. Every Sunday morning, God told me, you should be here 10 a.m. You can even come at like 9.45. We have bagels. Like, you should be here every Sunday. But... You understand what I'm saying? Ask yourself the question. In Proverbs 7, David's son Solomon tells of a young man who lacked common sense, who was wandering down roads he never should have been on and found himself sucked in by temptation and sin. 
He's just this, this vulnerable, naive, they call him a naive, senseless young man. Walking down the road, he's like, oh, I shouldn't be here, but I'm going to keep walking. And he goes down this road, and this is what he summarizes with. Don't let your heart stray towards her. Don't wander down wayward paths. For that has been the ruin of many. Many men have been victims there. That house is in the road, is, is the road to the grave. Her bedroom is the den of death. When you wander down roads, you shouldn't walk down. It's the same story every time. It always ends the same way. When you go where you shouldn't go, you end up where you shouldn't be. It's the principle of the path. Where this road leads is always where this road leads. And if you are not where you're supposed to be, you'll end up where you shouldn't go. The first step to our heart that's accountable is understanding if you're where you're supposed to be. And the second question is this. Does God have permission to hold you accountable? Does God have permission to search this? Will you let him point out broken parts of your heart? I don't think any of us would be like, God, can you please send a Nathan? Because I'd rather just not search my own heart. Can you just send somebody to like just absolutely like brutalize me and be like, you're that man. I don't want that. Seriously, like keep Nathan away. Like if you see a Nathan coming, be like, get out of here. Okay, I'm going to do this for God. Leave me alone. I don't I don't respond real well when people do like that in my life. Be like, hey, you know, but sometimes God, your your head's so thick that God's going to send you somebody because David needed a Nathan. How about can we just maybe skip that step and just be our own Nathans? Right. Here's what David David would go on to write these words that teach us how to be accountable. He would write these words. It goes like this. Oh, Lord, you've examined my heart. You know everything about me. You know when I sit and when I stand. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel, when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. And he concludes with this. Search me, oh, Lord. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. There are very few people I can think of that I trust enough to say, point out anything in me that offends you. I'm not going to open that door to a whole lot of people. Like my wife, if I'm really having a good day and I'm secure enough that I can handle whatever she's going to say to me, which is like maybe like half a percent of the time. (laughs) I'm not lying. Are we willing to invite God to point out Anything in us that offends him? God just... Uh, oh, let me tell you, accountability is hard. It's hard. We don't like people pointing out where we're... Because we sit and go, I'm trying my best. I'm working hard. Get off my case. I got a lot going on. Stress, all this kind of stuff. You know what? And we're just excusing away our bad decisions. God, you've got to have access to do work in here Because if not, then my failure defines me. That's what's at stake here. If I can't be accountable, if I can't be open to God, if God doesn't have permission to speak into my life and correct things that are wrong, guess what? My failures will be my story. That will be my legacy. Are you willing to invite God? Telling you, our society, it makes it hard for us. It hunts for dirt on anyone, uses it to bring them down. We've created an atmosphere and an environment where we're afraid to be accountable. 
We don't trust others to be forgiving. The cost and risk is too great. If, if I confess, if I'm accountable to somebody, they might do something. It could bring me down because our world doesn't operate according to God's principles. So since the world doesn't operate, I can't be accountable because i got to work within this world system. And guess what? God says we have to learn how to do confession better. The cost is too great not to be accountable. What happens is people sit in their sin for so long. And it cripples them. And you find yourself in a position of authority or leadership or power without the character to, to sustain you. And all the time, that's where we find leaders failing. Because along the way, there weren't systems for accountability built in place to help correct them along the way. And so what happens is we suffer in silence, we manage in silence, and there's nothing helpful there. Accountability is hard. We need to do much better at being accountable for the wrongs we do. But it requires all the things David displayed prior to this. Humility, truth, faith, compassion, selflessness, hope, vulnerability. And it's the only way forward. And here's the best part about accountability. Even if we royally blow it, pun intended, he was a king, all right, when we acknowledge our failure, We're not defined by it. What a gift. What a gift God gives us. The story of David, hopefully it encourages you today. As you understand, listen, God's not necessarily looking for perfect people. He's just looking for people to be vulnerable and honest and keep themselves accountable for him. Are you where you're supposed to be? And has God a permission to keep you accountable? Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, Or if you'd like to connect with us online, just visit wearelifetree.com.